Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let me share with you a quotation from the New York Times. Sarah Lyle is a writer at large for the Times, and she's author of a book called The Anglophiles, A Field Guide to the British. She says this, Even after 18 years, I never really knew where I stood with the English. Why did they keep apologising? Were they truly sorry? Why were they so unenthusiastic about enthusiasm? Why was their parliament full of classically educated grown-ups masquerading as unruly schoolchildren? Why did rain surprise them? Why were they still obsessed with the Nazis? Why were they so rude about Scotland and Wales when they all belonged to the same very small country? And this was the hardest question of all. What lay beneath their default social style An indecipherable mix of politeness, awkwardness, embarrassment, irony, self-deprecation, arrogance, defensiveness, and deflective humour. And in the rest of the article, she goes on to explain that she hasn't got a clue. Well, maybe you've had that experience of being a stranger, of being a foreigner. We uh, lived in the United States for a number of years, and uh, Britain and America have been described as... uh, Two nations divided by a common language. A number of things we learned in our time there about the differences between British and American culture, and it took a long time to figure out what some of those differences were. I once made the mistake of saying to a young lady that I would knock her up later, meaning I'll come and call for you, but that wasn't what it actually meant, it turned out. Being a stranger, a foreigner, resident in a place temporarily, you just know it's not your home. I wonder if you know what that feels like. Some of you do. I remember once, I was only there for about four days, spending a few days in Cambodia and feeling utterly displaced. I remember riding down a a dirt road on the back of a moped with my driver, who was a a moped driver who looked about 12 years old. And as the rain came down and, and we were surrounded on all sides by cyclists, some of them who had looked like four or five children and chickens on a, on a single bicycle. The rain came down, I realised I'm the only person on the entire road wearing a crash helmet. I suddenly realised this is not my home. Displaced. Stranger. Well, that is what a Christian is. I want to think about this question with you here today. What is a Christian? And you might be thinking, why are we thinking about this? Well, I've got three reasons. Cars, Clement, and Christendom. Firstly, is cars. Now, those of you who've had the joy of passing your driving test and uh, being let loose on an unsuspecting public will know that when you get a car, it's a lot of fun, but it also brings a good deal of responsibility. You have to take it to be serviced. If you don't take your car to be serviced regularly, all sorts of things can start going wrong with it. And it costs you more and more money. If you don't service your car, eventually it will rust. 
Now, similarly, Christians need to think seriously and deeply about their identity as Christians. And they need to do it regularly or they rust. And they rust because of corrosive influences, corrosive messages that are always coming in from the world around the Christians. Some of these messages are things like this. You are who you are because of your job. You're a teacher. You're a doctor. You're a bin man. As if the job somehow defines who you are. Well, no, that's not what Christianity says. It says you are who you are because of Jesus. Other messages are like this. You are who you are because of your money. You're defined by the amount of money you earn and have. And therefore what you can buy and drive and live in. Other, other messages from societies, you are who you are because of your parents, your background. You're brought up in a certain milieu, a certain social class. No! Christians believe that they are who they are because of Jesus, nothing else. And all those other things, jobs and money and background, are actually irrelevant. We need to think about what it means to be a Christian because of cars. Secondly, we need to think about this question because of Clement. And most of us here today have promised to help Clement become a Christian. What on earth were we promising? What exactly does Stephen and Rachel want for this boy? Surely it's more than just that he'll grow up to go to church at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. I think it's more than that. But what do we want for Clement and for all our children, those of us who are Christians? And thirdly, we need to answer the question, what is a Christian? Because of Christendom. Now, in the the early church, the early centuries of the church, the church was a minority in the Roman Empire, and it was persecuted on and off. And even when it wasn't being persecuted, it was treated with suspicion and sort of just about tolerance. Everything changed in the 4th century. A man who was set to become the Roman Emperor, Constantine, had a dramatic conversion experience, and he gave Christianity official tolerance. Now... People often think that Constantine made the the Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. It wasn't him, but a subsequent emperor. But within the 4th century, Christianity went from being a minority, persecuted, excluded, suspect kind of thing, to being the official faith of the whole Roman Empire. And guess what? Most people then converted. And that led to a state of affairs that's been called Christendom since that time, until probably sometime in the latter half of the 20th century in the West. In Christendom, Christianity had an official, privileged, insider kind of status. Church and state were joined. Bishops get to sit in the House of Lords. The Prime Minister gets to appoint the Archbishop of Canterbury. There's a kind of insider status. And this was still being lived on in the 1950s. Billy Graham came to this country, a great American preacher and evangelist, and he, 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 he managed to fill football stadia with people who came and heard him speak and gave their lives to Jesus. Really, he was still operating within Christendom, where people still had respect for the church and still had some knowledge of the Bible and still basically believed in Jesus. And you could call on that and summon people to commitment. And you know what? Those days are gone. Those days are gone. 30 years ago, a a minister could get respect for wearing a dog collar and walking up to someone's door and knocking on it. Those days are gone. We don't live in Christendom anymore. We're departing from it very, very rapidly. 
Now, I say that I'm not passing any value judgment today on whether Christendom was good, bad, or indifferent, just to point out that we're not there anymore. We live in a different world, post-Christendom in the West. So Christians must ask, how are we going to thrive in this new world? Not just survive, but thrive and make the most of the opportunities that it brings. Now then, 1 Peter is the most powerful document in the New Testament that addresses people in that situation. They're not the privileged insiders. They don't have power. They're treated with suspicion. They're a bit on the margins. And Peter, the apostle, the great apostle, writes to them this manual for living as Christians, as God's people, in that kind of world. So we're going to be doing a series in it, and today we're starting. And the letter starts out by telling us what a Christian is. Peter wants to remind his readers what a Christian is. Three points, who we are, where we are, and why we are. Who we are. Let's look at our text again. 1 Peter 1. Peter introduces himself very briefly. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is page 1217 if you've lost it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. God's elect exiles. So the first thing we notice about Christians is that they are elect. That means that God specially, deliberately, chose to call people to himself ahead of time. Now the background to this is the Old Testament people of God, Israel. Israel was a nation of slaves. God specially called them to himself and said, I will make you my people and, you will be, and I will be your God. I will look after you, I'll protect you. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse them. Whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless them. You'll be my treasured possession. And he carried them on eagle's wings and took them to a special land that he'd created for them. There was nothing about the Jewish people that made them particularly desirable to God. They didn't have any special kind of moral character. They weren't particularly more intelligent or gifted or creative than anyone else in the ancient world. God actually says, no, it's none of these things. It's because I loved you. I set my love on you. That's why I chose you to be my special people. Now, Peter says that chosen status that Israel enjoyed is now applied to the church of Jesus Christ. You are God's elect people, chosen people. But maybe this is an interesting flip side to the coin. Not just elect, but also exiles. We are exiles Now, the background of this word translated here, exiles, is somebody who is a foreigner in a country that they don't belong to. They're temporarily visiting. There may be an immigrant, someone with temporary status, a stranger. Peter says Christians are exiles. They are displaced people. They're strangers in the world belonging to another place. Now, what this means, elect and exiles, is that Christian people are spiritually privileged and socially disadvantaged. Spiritually have the highest privileges in the world to belong to God, and socially, actually, to be out of step with the rest of the world around. That's where we belong. On the margins. Out of step, different from other people. A little bit uncomfortably different. And there's a link here. Being elect means you're an exile. Because exile comes from being elect. So... In the words of an old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. 
who we are is elect and exiles. Now, that's who we are, but we're in a location. And where exactly are we? Well, the letter says, back to our text, we are scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. What's going on here? The first word is scattered. Now, the text, the original language underneath this, actually says that we are of the diaspora. There's the word. The diaspora. A Jewish word that referred to the Jews who'd been exiled from their homeland in 586 BC and sent off by their oppressors to the east, to Babylon. And from that point on, the Jews who were scattered around the world were referred to as the diaspora, the scattered people longing for their homeland. And what Peter is saying here is that Christians now are like that. We're scattered around the world. We're not in our homeland. We're yearning for home. We are a scattered people. But we're also in these places. Now, Peter was writing to the area that we think of as Turkey, modern Turkey. And he's writing to these different provinces, to a massive area, over 300,000 square miles. Huge area. And he sends a letter that's probably a kind of circular. So this, these five um, provinces probably describe the route that the courier would take the letter. First of all, start at Pontus, then go to Galatia, then Cappadocia, which is really far out, then Asia, which isn't modern-day Asia, but part of Turkey, then Bithynia. Now, what's the point here? The point is that we have dual citizenship as Christians. We belong to the world to come, we belong to God, but also we belong to these local, geographic, real places. And if you lived in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, or Bithynia, you knew that the Romans were in charge. They were an overwhelming, dominant superpower. They controlled everything. They could displace people at the drop of a hat. They could move whole groups and cities and just drop them somewhere else. They were an absolutely controlling power. And in their world, Christians were a minority. Sometimes tolerated, sometimes not. Having rather a precarious existence. Christians were on the margins of society, not privileged, not insiders. So Peter is saying, you're scattered and you're on the margins. That's where you belong. That's where we are. That's where we live. That's how we have to consider ourselves. So two things, who we are, elect and exiles, and where we are. We are scattered and we're in these five regions. Now, who scattered us? Who scattered us? If God is so in control that he can, before even the beginning of time, think about your name and call you by name and belong to him, then who do you think scattered you? God. God is the one who put us in exile so that we can live for him where he's placed us. And that takes us to our final point, which is why we are Christians. Pick it up in verse 2. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now this is really dense, and lots is packed in here. The first thing Peter tells us is that we're chosen by the Father, God the Father. That means that God, before the world was made, before time began, before you were a twinkle in your dad's eye, before anything that we recognize as the universe came into existence, God knew in advance 
that he was going to choose a people for himself, a people made up of countless tribes and tongues and nations, a people made up of billions of individuals. And God didn't just sort of foreknow that and predict it because he knows everything. It's, the word that's used here suggests God's choice, his will, his decision. God knew you in advance and called you out to belong to him. Now this takes us into the heady world of predestination. And people have problems with this. How does, how does this work? How can we have our own free will and responsibility if God is so much in control? The writer who is most associated with the idea of predestination is John Calvin, a 16th century reformer. Calvin wrote this, Human curiosity renders the discussion of predestination already somewhat difficult, very confusing, and even dangerous. No restraints can hold human curiosity back from wandering in forbidden bypaths and thrusting upwards to the heights. If allowed, our curiosity will leave no secret to God that it will not search out and unravel. Since we see so many on all sides rushing into this audacity and impudence, among them certain men not otherwise bad, they should in due season be reminded of the measure of their duty in this regard. What Calvin's saying is, do you know what? Predestination, it's above your pay grade. You're not going to be able to figure it all out. And the purpose of God saying that we were chosen by the foreknowledge of the Father is not to satisfy our curiosity and our philosophy, but actually to give us comfort. To give us comfort. Some of you heard me tell this story before about Steve Jobs, the genius businessman, founder of Apple Computers. Steve Jobs was adopted, and he knew about that from a very early age. His parents were always very open with him about it. And he had a vivid memory of sitting in a garden when he was six or seven years old, telling the girl across the street that he was adopted. And she asked, so does that mean your parents didn't want you? Jobs recalled, lightning bolts went off in my head. I remember running into the house crying. And my parents said, no, you have to understand. They were very serious and they looked me straight in the eye. They said, we specifically picked you out. We specifically picked you out. Both my parents said it and repeated it slowly for me and they put an emphasis on every word in that sentence. Peter says, Christians, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He specifically picked you out. Now, how does this happen? The second thing he tells us is that we were sanctified by the work of the Spirit. Sanctified. Now, this is a strange word. We don't use it very often in everyday life. Sanctified has two kind of main meanings. Let me illustrate them with a whiskey glass and a baby bottle. I should have brought them with me. I have a whiskey glass at home that my wife bought me as a special present about two years ago. This glass is really heavy. It's made of crystal. It's, uh, I think it cost about £45 for one glass. So it was a big deal. And I wash it very, very carefully and dry it very, very carefully. And I have to kind of hold it up to the light and make sure there are no fingerprints on it. It's my pride and joy. Now our children can drink from any cup and any beaker and any receptacle in our house that they like. 
except that glass. They don't touch the glass because it's set apart. It's special. You don't give your whiskey glass to a five-year-old so he can drink his juice out of it and drop it on the floor. It is special, set apart. Now, that's one meaning of the word sanctified. Special and set apart, cherished. The other meaning is a, is a meaning that we could summarize with a baby bottle. I was at someone's house yesterday. There was a baby bottle on the side. I was doing some washing up. And I said, do you want me to wash this? He said, yeah, wash it first. Then we'll sterilize it. Now, was that an insult to me and my washing up? <laughs> Maybe. I didn't take it as an insult. You know what? This, this guy's got a three-month-old baby. He's paranoid about germs. Wash the bottle and then sterilize. Because it has to be clean. We don't want the baby getting infected with something or other. Now, the Bible says here that Christians have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That means you're like a whiskey glass and like a baby bottle. You're special, set apart for special purposes and clean, pure, to be free from impurity. And this all happens through the work of God's Spirit. God's active presence in the world, calling people out, making them understand his truth, drawing them to himself, making them see the depth of their need and their sin. Guilty, vile and helpless we, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Now if you can say that you're guilty, vile and helpless, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and mind and opening your eyes to the realities of God. So a person becomes a Christian not by just bringing them up in the right way and teaching them the Bible, although that's part of it. Not by just bringing them and helping them to hear preaching, but actually because God's spirit in a supernatural way wakes them up and gives them new life. God's spirit has to be at work for anyone to become a Christian, Clement or anyone else. You are who you are by a creative work of the living God himself. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, Sanctified by the Spirit. How does it happen? Thirdly, through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Back to our text again. Let me read it all. Verse 2. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To be obedient to Jesus Christ. And sprinkled with his blood. Now sprinkling with blood. Doesn't sound particularly clean. We don't usually sprinkle things with blood if we want to purify them. But that's exactly what it means in the Old Testament. In Numbers 19, the law of Moses directs for how the ashes of a red heifer were to be mixed with water and sprinkled on people in order to make them ritually clean. Moses took blood and splashed it on the side of the altar in order to start the covenant relationship with God's people. Blood, somehow in the Bible, makes people clean. How? Well, it's symbolic. Blood sacrifice clears away our sin in God's sight because a creature's life is in its blood. A creature's life is in its blood. Our sin, our disobedience of God gives ultimate offence to him. It brings death into the world and it makes a debt between us and him. And it must be repaid. Only life can clear away a debt like that. The Bible says that God will take a substitute sacrifice for your life. 
And in the Old Testament, the image of that was a lamb or a goat or a dove or a bull, depending on how rich you were. But in the New Testament, we find that Jesus Christ himself becomes the ultimate sacrifice. He takes our shame and pain and sin on the cross and his blood sets us free and cleanses us. So, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in making a person into a Christian. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus the Son. But what is it for? All of this divine activity, what's the point? The answer is a single word, obedience. Obedience. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. We're not chosen and sanctified and sprinkled, so we can just carry on in living exactly as we did before. We're chosen, sanctified and sprinkled to, to go into an entirely new way of life. So what does that look like in exile? Let me finish with these three observations. If we're chosen for obedience to Jesus, it means that Christians will value purity much more highly than the world around. Sexual purity. Purity the way we speak. Purity in the way we consume the media. A holy people, Peter says. So let me ask, if you're a Christian here today, do you value purity that much? Do you strive to keep the high standards of God's law? Do you do your best to make sure that there's nothing impure in your heart and mind, your TV use and your internet use? Do you value purity? Secondly, it means that Christians will value truth more highly than the world around. We will have absolute integrity if we're called to obey Jesus. My word should be my bond. Speaking the truth to one another in love. Nobody else in the world will confront things in love, but we must. So let me ask, do you? And thirdly, Christians will value community. Now, our society pays lip service to the idea of community. We talk about communities all the time and the big society and community initiatives. But very few people are deeply, deeply committed to community when it costs. Christians will be in each other's lives, in each other's homes, much more than the surrounding world because we belong to each other and we belong to Jesus. So are you committed to community, to truth, to purity? We're going to learn in 1 Peter that Christians will be a community of light in a dark world, will be a city within the city, will be a counterculture within the major culture. How are we going to maintain this tension? We'll do it by constantly looking to Jesus. Let me finish with these words from Hebrews chapter 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've thought about some weighty things today. We've thought about some joyful things with Clement here and the families gathered We've thought about the nature of what it means to belong to you, to be one of your chosen people, 
sanctified, sprinkled. And so we pray, help us to be faithful in the lives that you've given to us, to be obedient to Jesus Christ in this, our generation. Amen.